That Was We Shall Not Be Moved, performed by the Freedom Singers at the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom in Washington, D.C. on August 28, 1963. This is the civil rights movement we learn about in school. Masses of mid-20th century black Americans with a few white allies, challenging power, a nonviolent movement peacefully demanding that the United States and its Constitution keep its promises to all Americans. But as we learned in our last episode about the Grimke family, that movement has a long history. The fight for black emancipation before 1865, the emergence of a black leadership class during that fight, troubled alliances across the color line as slavery was slowly dismantled and freedom won, the anti-black violence that sought to return African Americans to subservience, and the emergence of not just racial stratification and Jim Crow, but of a black post-war professional and political class, many descended from elite white families, that anxiously guarded its leadership status and educated itself at the finest schools. By the turn of the 20th century, the mass of black Americans had never enjoyed the full freedom to which they were entitled under the Constitution. And while the talented 10th, as black scholar W.E.B. Du Bois called his peers, built a world for themselves that they imagined would lead all African Americans to full citizenship, those hopes were dashed by the 1890s through political disenfranchisement, Jim Crow segregation, and violence. America was becoming more, not less, unequal before World War I, and by the early 1920s, radical political and labor movements of all kinds had been crushed by government raids. Racial equality seemed out of reach. Yet by then, progressive organizers had begun another experiment. Drawing on an American utopian past that imagined personal relationships, cooperation, and community building as an engine for political progress, they built new utopian interracial communities. The Brookwood Labor College in upstate New York, the Delta Cooperative Farm in Mississippi, Highlander Folk School in Tennessee. In these places, black and white together Organizers, students, and workers imagined a new interracial world, one that both prefigured possibilities for a new American future and also allowed them to love each other and cooperate in the present. That's what Victoria Walcott, a historian at the State University of New York at Buffalo and the author of Living in the Future, Utopianism and the Long Civil Rights Movement, is here to talk to us about today. You're listening to Why Now?, where history and politics meet the challenge of today. And I'm your host, Claire Potter, a professor of history at the New School for Social Research and the author of the Political Junkie Substack. This is episode three of Why Now? Black and White Together. First of all, I'd like to start with the name of this wonderful book, Living in the Future, Utopianism and the Long Civil Rights Movement. And listeners are going to see there's going to be a picture of, of your book on political junkies. And there's this wonderful photograph of a black child and a white child holding a piece of fruit, um, a melon, 
um, looking into the camera. Uh, so I want to begin with that image and with the title of the book, Living in the Future, which leads us to a central concept, prefigurative politics. Can you tell our listeners what you mean by prefigurative politics? Absolutely. And that image is a Dorothea Lange photograph from the Great Depression uh, taken on this cooperative farm, an interracial cooperative farm in Mississippi. So it it works really well as an image for the project. Uh, the term prefigurative politics is it's a little bit of a clunky term, but it was developed by social scientists in the 1970s, um, including feminist scholars like Winnie Brines and Sheila Robotham, to talk about what had happened during the uh, kind of countercultural social movements of the 1960s. And they argued that these movements were trying to prefigure a world that they envisioned. So a world of gender equality in terms of second wave feminism, a world of racial equality, um, a world of, of, you know, peace and, and a world without war, that in their daily lives and in their social movement cultures, they try to again prefigure this idea. Uh, another way to think about this is the kind of questions of ends versus means. So for prefigurative political groups, they very much value the means, how you get to the end. And sometimes they value it as much or even more so that you need to fill those values out in your daily life. Um, the other thing that these scholars really talked about with these movements is this notion of counter institutions. So if you think about something like second wave feminism, things like domestic violence shelters, other forms of counter institutions that could create spaces, physical spaces often, uh, where these values could be enacted. So that was the sort of idea of prefigurative politics. What I've done in my book is think about this politics in the context of a broader utopian history in the United States, and then to move the chronology earlier to really the middle of the 20th century, so start at 20s, 30s, and 40s largely, um, to think about how this earlier period helped to shape these broader movements. Moving back in time uh, before what we understand as the civil rights movement, um, which really bursts onto the national scene in 1955 with the Montgomery bus boycott. Um, it's really a sort of central premise of this book that everything that happens in the 1950s and 60s is drawing on these prefigurative politics. But it's also drawing on this idea of utopianism, um, and the United States has a long tradition of utopianism. I wonder if you could talk to our listeners a little bit about why that's so and why utopian thinking was particularly attractive to those who were seeking racial justice prior to the civil rights movement and the form it takes in the 1950s. Yes. So you're absolutely right. There's a long history of utopianism in the United States. And I sometimes think about this as a kind of parallel history. So often when we think about American society, we think about individualism and competitive capitalism. But really from the 18th century, there's a parallel history of communalism and cooperation. Um, and there's basically two major strands of that in American history. One of those strands, which was particularly important for the 19th century, was around radical religion. Uh, these are mostly Protestant groups who believe in millennialism 
and they're trying to kind of usher in the final judgment by living a perfect life, right? So a notion of perfectionism. Uh, the Shakers are the most, I think, well-known of these groups. Uh, the Mormons, though, have their origins in this sort of radical religion movement as well. Uh, and there's many others, particularly, again, in that first half of the 19th century. And some of that also is engaged in the abolitionist movement and the early feminist movement as well. The second kind of strand is more secular and more socialist in orientation. And the two biggest figures here for the 19th century, um, particularly important is Robert Owen, who was a Scottish thinker who founds a utopian community called New Harmony in Indiana. Doesn't last very long, but he is, his writing and his speeches are really influential. Uh, and the other one is a French thinker named Charles Fourier. And there's also another, a lot of uh, utopian communities around him. So what's really interesting in terms of Afri African-American history is that particularly, I think, the ideas of Robert Owen, who promoted notions of both cooperation and living in a cooperative society, but also creating cooperatives, right, um, economic cooperatives, that became very, very attractive in the post-emancipation period to freed people because they didn't have very many resources and gathering their resources together in a more communal kind of economic cooperative sense would help potentially allow them uh, to build communities and perhaps protect themselves from um, the surrounding kind of white violence and white racism. There's a very famous all black town from the late 19th century, um, Mount Bayou in Mississippi, uh, where the leaders of that town actually has a direct connection to Robert Owen's sort of ideas. Also, other all-black towns in, the, in Kansas and Oklahoma, too, often run on a cooperative basis. So going into the 20th century, just super briefly here, you know, W.E.B. Du Bois, by the 19-teens, he becomes very enamored with uh, cooperation and cooperatives as an economic solution for Black Americans and starts to promote it. Um, and then civil rights activists like Ella Baker, for example, uh, Polly Murray and others also in the late 20s and into the 1930s start promoting uh, cooperation as well. So that secular socialist strand of utopianism has a direct connection into this early period of the civil rights movement. It's just fascinating. And, you know, one of the things that I thought about when I was reading about utopianism is that it stands in contradiction to liberal theories of gradualism, that that racism could be ended gradually if you took these tiny, tiny steps toward a, a goal of ending racial violence or ending poverty that was that was grounded in racism and so on. And utopianism basically says you can buy some land and live the way you want to now. Right. right. I, I think that distinction is really I'm so glad that you you picked up on that so strongly, because I think it's a there's often a sort of misunderstanding um, of the differences between a kind of radical interracialism and nonviolence um, and what what some scholars might call a liberal integrationism, which is all about gradualism. So the living in the future folks they're creating that future in the here and now. They, they really want nothing to do with gradualism, which is why something like a nonviolent direct action kind of tactic um, just sort of beautifully in a theatrical way uh, shows that to be the case. I'm not going to wait until we pass a law or change the constitution or whatever it is to sit down at this lunch counter. I'm just going to sit down at this lunch counter now as if we live in a world without Jim Crow segregation. So that's a very, very important um, intervention um, that I'm trying to make to, to, to recognize the radicalism of these kinds of actions. Yep. Yep. No, I think that's really important. And 
I also want to ask you to define something else for us, because I think it's a core concept in the book, this question of the long civil rights movement. When historians talk about a long civil rights movement, what do they mean? And why is it meaningful to think about the African-American civil rights struggle, a social movement that launched a range of new left movements, as having begun decades before the Montgomery bus boycott? Yeah, so this is a very important concept. It's really been a a kind of revolutionary turn in the historiography, particularly of African-American history, but broadly, American history more broadly. Uh, So I'll give you the, the Jacqueline Dowd Hall, who wrote this very important foundational essay on the long civil rights movement. So I'll give you sort of her definition. There is, of course, some debate among historians, as you might imagine. Um, But there's sort of three interventions that are being made. Um, The first, which is probably the most significant, seems obvious, is the long part. So that making the chronology of the civil rights movement longer. Um, And Dowd Hall talks about it as emerging from the 1930s and the civil rights unionism of the 1930s, and then carries it all the way into the 1970s, where you have Black Nationalist, uh, Black Panther Party, and other nationalist groups in that period. So that's the first sort of biggest intervention. But coming out of that are two other really important interventions. You have, of course, the question of geography. So rather than seeing the civil rights movement as merely something that happens in Alabama or Mississippi in the deep South states, it is a national movement. It happens outside of the South. Um, And part of that, of course, is taking more seriously uh, kind of questions of black nationalism as well as the sort of more traditional civil rights organizations. So that's the third intervention there thinking about the Black Power Movement, thinking about a variety of tactics um, rather than the sort of centrality of Martin Luther King Jr., um, SCLC, and SNCC, which is sort of the foundational history. So that's the, the broad definition. For the early piece, why is it important to look at this movement as coming out of the 1930s? It's largely because it puts back in place a really central component of the movement, which is its alliance with the labor movement. Um, and again, I think I used that term before, civil rights unionism. But but in the 1920s and 1930s, but particularly in the 1930s, there is this alliance between developing organized labor organizations, particularly the CIO, um, and questions around racial justice and racial equality. CIO leaders know that if they're going to organize unskilled workers, they have to organize them across racial lines. So they have a motivation there. Um, and many African-American activists, people like uh, you know, Randolph or, or even Du Bois, understand that the labor movement is a way to get white allies and to kind of put their ideas forward. So that's a really important piece. I think the thing that I'm also adding to this narrative um, is also to suggest some of the origins of nonviolent direct action that becomes so important for the later mass movement and really seeing those origins in the late 30s and 1940s with these small pacifist uh, communities that start to actually develop nonviolent direct action as a tactic um, and actually start to deploy it and have some real success in doing so. So the labor piece is really important, um, but also the sort of early kind of use of these tactics is also very important. And um, listeners, I just want to say we're going to link to Jacqueline Dowd Hall's article about the long civil rights movement in our show notes. Um, I think it won a prize. And we'll also link to Hall's book about the Lumpkin sisters, uh, Sisters and Rebels, which I think is the book she was working on when she when she wrote that formative piece. 
Um, but I just want to ask you one more thing, uh, just a follow up on this question, Victoria. One of the things I noticed in your book is there are a lot more women in this earlier period, um, or at least you seem to emphasize a lot of women who later show up in the civil rights movement and the feminist movement and so on. But our our histories of the civil rights movement, you know, that begin in 1955 have a tendency to privilege men. And those organizations had a tendency to privilege men. But these earlier organizations seemed to have a sort of more focused lens on gender equality as well as racial equality. They absolutely did. Um, And that really comes out from the 19-teens and 20s in part from the workers' education movement. Uh, And this was a movement that was started by women labor activists, you know, from the International Ladies Garment Workers Union. So there was a there was a lot of interest in places like the Brookwood Labor College, which I write about, which people probably aren't that familiar with, but also Highlander Folk School, that many of the activists who are involved in these kind of, again, counter institutions are talking about gender equality, are are talking about the need to organize women workers, and are bringing African-American women um, into those institutions to help train them. Uh, And again, I mentioned before, Ella Baker was one of those women. She went to to Brookwood, uh, did workers' education work, did work on cooperatives, and then went on to be I would argue one of the most significant civil rights activists of the 20th century. Polly Murray was another. And I just kept running across I kept running across these women in places I didn't expect them to be. Um, and 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 so that it really comes out of the sources. Uh, so those are some of the famous names, but it definitely kind of runs all the way through. And I'm not suggesting that these particular groups are always without their own gender hierarchies or without some level of sexism, but there is more of a conversation uh, about that because of this sort of idea of trying to create a perfect society, which would include some sort of gender equality as well. That's great. And um, Victoria, I'd like to take a little break in the questioning now, um, or our conversation, and ask you if there's a passage in the book you could read to our listeners um, to give them a flavor of the wonderful things that are inside. Sure. I thought I I would actually share just a couple of paragraphs about the Father Divine movement. This is a this is a truly utopian community, um, much more kind of traditionally defined by a black religious charismatic religious leader, Father Divine. And he does sort of remarkable amounts of organizing, political organizing, as well as his sort of religious teachings. Um, And he has enormous success during the the Great Depression era with these economic cooperatives. And so this is a passage about an area that he creates called the Promised Land, which is in upstate uh, New York. So Divine established his promised land in Ulster County, New York, about 100 miles due north of Harlem and accessible by steamboat, train, or car. Ulster County was an overwhelmingly white area, but for Divine, this was an asset rather than a drawback. As he built his cooperative empire, he deliberately sought out opportunities to racially integrate communities despite threats of violence. Divinites first challenged the color line in Sayville, Long Island, and now they challenged it in upstate New York. Devine bought his first cooperative farm in 1935 and put an African-American woman, Mother Sarah Love, in charge. At its height, Promised Land consisted of 30 communities that housed 2,300 people. Um, And again, that's just a remarkable number of people and was spread about across about 2,000 acres. All of the cooperatives were women run and interracial. 
In addition to farms with cows, chickens, and garden vegetables, the promised land boasted cooperative gas stations, restaurants, and tourist residents. Two large docks with lavish boathouses welcomed excursion steamers from the city. As with his urban cooperatives, the promised land ran only on cash, and divinites sold all their goods at below market rate. They lived communally, sharing their labor and profit from their farms. Although initially dismayed by the influx of, cons of newcomers, white Ulster residents found that the flourishing cooperatives improved the local economy, raised property values, and attracted new businesses. Um, and so he and he has these these very elaborate mansions too that are run cooperatively, um, including something called Crumb Elbow, which is across the Hudson River from Hyde Park, which is the Roosevelt's um, house, of course. So it's really a, a kind of remarkable experiential experimental community that's enormously successful and has been sort of lost, I think, to history. You know, I really love the part where they buy that property at Crumb Elbow and then. Eleanor and Franklin Roosevelt get to say publicly, you know, congratulations, we're not, we're glad to have you as neighbors. Um, and it's one of the few moments that we actually see Franklin Roosevelt reaching out to Black people in any kind of a public way. Yeah, and I, th I think that's because um, it was understood that Father Divine had a lot of power uh, in New York state politics at that point. So there were other white politicians, you know, going to him and to his organization um, as a way to, to garner votes. Um, and Eleanor Roosevelt, of course, we know was much more liberal in, in terms of her racial politics. And she she was very warm um, about this movement, you know, across the river. So and this is all like playing out in the New York Times and, and so forth at the time. Well, and, and I think one of the things that you clarified for me and perhaps others have written about this, but I didn't know it, is I've always heard of Father Divine as a kind of grift. Um, and, you know, what you point out is the reason they have so much money to buy these properties and the planes and the boats and everything like that is because actually the financial model worked. That's right. So he was dismissed at the time and actually since often as a charlatan. Um, but if you, uh, there were, you know, people at the time, journalists and, and others who were doing deep dives and looking at the economics of this, and, and it, it was actually very, very effective. If you're living communally, um, they don't drink alcohol, they don't smoke cigarettes, uh, they are kind of pulling all of their resources, uh, that that can be a very, very effective way to, you know, to develop a economic wealth. And we see this in other utopian communities. If you think about like Oneida in the 19th century, um, and there's others as well that become, that actually do fairly well through this cooperative kind of model. Yeah. And, you know, you really made me look at cooperatives differently. I mean, I'm surranded by them here in Northampton, Massachusetts. Oh, that's true. So they're cooperatives. There are, we've got food co-ops, you know, everything's a co-op. But in reading your book, I was really drawn to the cooperative movement not just as an alternative to capitalism, but as an alternative to another social justice model, which a number of people have written about, racial capitalism. Um, and so it seems like cooperativism is a model for simultaneously sustaining a humane life and showing the larger community the benefits of racial cooperation. I think that's right. And there was definitely tension. Um, if you think about, for example, Booker T. Washington and his National Negro Business League, which is this sort of entrepreneurial organization he founds, 
in some ways, he helps to promote cooperatives, but the kind of cooperatives that people like Ella Baker and Du Bois are promoting are, it's much more about kind of creating a cooperative society, a new society with, with a set of values that are attached to right. these specific businesses. Um, so there is a tension between kind of black entrepreneurship, racial capitalism, which involves private businesses uh, and cooperatives, which are more communal in nature and, and often, you know, just involve more more well, cooperation, just to your brotherhood would be the term they would often use within communities. Um, I think the other piece here, which is really interesting, is something that Elizabeth Cohen has written about, which is women's uh, consumer movements as well within the African American community, which is much more on this sort of expansive idea of cooperation. So there was these organizations called Housewives Leagues in the 1930s, uh, where Black women were working to make businesses accountable to the Black community, to the African American community in their role as consumers. So that too was kind of part of this interwar kind of cooperation movement that was very, very empowering, didn't sort of, didn't really survive after World War II for, for much longer. A lot of those cooperatives closed down, except in places like Northampton. Um, but like Buffalo, where I live, had a thriving Black cooperative, a set of businesses in downtown Buffalo in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. But by the late 50s, they collapse. So. Yeah. Well, and, and part of what's very attractive about it is that people don't have to have any money to join a cooperative, they all they have to have is a willingness to work and and invest in the ideal of the community. That's absolutely right. So if you think about those children on the cover of my book, um, these are displaced sharecroppers, both white and black families, who have literally nothing. I mean, they have been displaced, um, in many cases beaten, uh, terrorized by their the former plantation owners, thrown off the plantations, and they are completely destitute. Uh, and they're facing, of course, a rising tide of, of white supremacist violence. Um, but on this farm together, they are able to, through their labor, create, you know, grow crops, uh, create enough stability for their families to actually thrive or at least survive during this period. So, yes, it is. That is the great benefit of cooperatives. Mm -hmm. And one of the things you mentioned in the book is that actually a lot of them were sponsored by people, that a lot of these cooperatives weren't actually self-supporting right away, and that some of them collapsed because of that as well. Absolutely. So that was definitely true of the Mississippi Cooperative, which became, this is um, the, the Delta Cooperative Farm. It became uh, something of a, a model really internationally where, you know, intellectuals, uh, people like Reinhold Niemer, people like that, Eleanor Roosevelt supported the Mississippi Delta Cooperative, who were interested both in a kind of uh, ideas about racial equality, but also, you know, ideas to offset rampant market capitalism, were donating to the farm, were actually traveling there and, and visiting it. Um, so that created less of a solid base. In some ways, the Father Divine movement is much more effective, in part because they're able, they're not actually dependent on these sort of outside donations. Um, and I should also say there's a bit of an anarchist strand through many of these groups as well, where uh, they're not interested in being necessarily supported by the state because they want to be independent of the state. So there's also that sort of somewhat complicated piece of it. It's really interesting that this movement is rising at the same time that liberalism is being remade by the New Deal as a state-centered way of caring for Americans. 
Yeah, I, that's right. I mean, um, now some of the New Deal uh, organizations and, and leaders go to the Delta Cooperative Farm um, and some of these other institutions and use them as models for New Deal projects. Uh, but what you see with those New, New Deal cooperative farms is they're much more likely to be racially segregated uh, than this experimental ones. And that's always pointed to as an example of that there's limits to what the state is actually uh, able to do. So there's a little bit of a, of a freedom that these groups experiencing working, you know, again, kind of outside of um, either kind of state channels, but in the case of organized labor, also sometimes outside of particularly the American Federation of Labor. So the workers' education movement um, that I find so fascinating you know, it was flourishing in the 19-teens and 20s in part because the AFL had no interest in organizing women workers or organizing African-American workers or, you know, organizing unskilled workers. So there's this kind of flourishing movement outside of the more traditional labor movement. And often these groups like to be outside of um, state power, uh, but also sometimes institutional power. Yeah, that's really interesting. And you mentioned something earlier that I just want to emphasize about this book, because it really struck me while I was reading it, the internationalism of this movement, um, particularly in the last couple chapters, when you get to the fellowship houses and Gandhi and nonviolence and so on. It's not just that Europeans and South Asians are coming to the United States to see these things and participate. But African-American and white activists from the United States are going to India, they're going to Europe, they're traveling around and looking for other models as well. And that internationalism strikes me as so important. Oh, I, I completely agree. And it really is fascinating. Um, so Glenda Gilmore has that great book, Define Dixie, where she talks about that travel in terms of the Communist Party. And of course, Robin Kelly as well has written about that. Uh, I think there's a little bit less written about in terms of these pacifist and, and cooperative communities. But I actually wrote a kind of spinoff article about an African-American woman, young woman. Her name was Floria Pinckney, and she was part of the workers' education movement. She was um, a garment worker in New York City. Uh, and she ends up traveling to um, these Dutch folk schools in England, actually does a couple of different European travels, um, goes to a, a YWCA conference in Geneva uh, in, the, in the early part of the 1930s. So it was really interesting to see her, you know, with she was a working class, you know, industrial worker, taking that organizing knowledge that she had and the workers education sort of um, uh, basically platform and doing this international travel. And as I mentioned, there's a whole kind of pacifist network as well. That's very, by the time you get to the mid to late thirties, um, becomes increasingly important, you know, Great Britain, obviously South Asia, um, and elsewhere kind of a circulation of ideas, but also of people. Yeah, that's really interesting. And so Victoria, we'll link to the article that you mentioned as well, so that our listeners can take a look at that. And I wanted to ask you, the way this book is structured, it's structured around different experiments, different communities, different organizations, with many of the same people threading through them. Polly Murray was all over the place. I mean, that was just astonishing. Yeah. <laughs> um, but as a historian, which one of these case studies surprised you most when you began to dig into the research? 
So I was pretty familiar already with the civil rights material, the Congress of Racial Equality, partly because of the other books I've written. Um, but the thing that, and this will maybe not be a surprise because I've already talked about it a bit, but the thing that really struck me in new and fresh ways is this workers' education movement, which was an overtly feminist labor movement um, that that just operated in, in absolutely uh, fascinating ways. I'll just have a quick quote here. This is from Fania Khan, a Jewish woman who's one of the main organizers of this movement. And she says, it quote, dreams of a world where economic and social justice will prevail, where the welfare of mankind will be the aim of all activity, where society will be organized as a cooperative commonwealth. So this is a movement that believed in the roses part of the bread and roses idea, right? So they yep. weren't just organizing women workers to organize unions, although they were certainly doing that. This is how you negotiate, et cetera. Um, but they were providing um, education about history, about literature. They created these things, which I just love, called the unity houses. There is both some in cities, but some in the countryside where working class women, African-American women, as well as immigrant women and others would congregate for sometimes like usually about a week and they could have decent food. Um, they had recreation. Uh, they had some, some labor training as well, but it was like this, this sort of retreat, right. But for workers. And that to me, just that to me seems enormously like I, I want that for Amazon warehouse workers, right. I think there's a lot of workers out there who could use a unity house. So I found that really fascinating. Um, and they did create these institutions. I mentioned Brookwood Highlander Folk School, incredibly important for um, the broader civil rights movement as well. So the the kind of connection between that that you know early 20th century workers education movement. Um, into the broader civil rights and labor movements, it was really new to me and really interesting. Well, and what you mentioned about these communities that offer respite, that really struck me about the book, that what all of these utopian communities offer is a place where people can rest. People who are perhaps working in a factory, but also perhaps working as activists um, who are doing all this organizing and so on. It's a place for them to recharge. It's a place for them to be among their own people, to not be in conflict all the time. And I found that very moving. Um, and it is, it's something that really only very wealthy people seem to have access to nowadays. <laughs> Yeah, it is very moving. And during the height, the most dangerous period of, of the movement, the, the early 60s, um, when these students are student nonviolent coordinating committee are being absolutely brutalized and in some cases murdered, there were some older pacifist uh, farms uh, in the South that would invite them in so they could just rest. Yeah. And and if you read, you know, um, memoirs of these activists, they talk about um, how significant and how important that is. So, so yeah, I do think that they, they play a really, really important role. If you think about somebody like uh, Bayard Rustin, for example, who helped found the Congress of Racial Equality, he's traveling, like that's the, like all he does, right? He's traveling from city to city, he's doing workshops, he's doing talks. Um, and so with all that, and Ella Baker, this is definitely the case for as well, um, with that kind of organizing work, it's absolutely exhausting. And you do need places where like-minded people will be there and, and help kind of lift you up. Yeah. Yeah. We could use more of them today. Yes, we um, could. <laughs> so Victoria, um, this podcast is called Why Now? And one of the points of the podcast is to offer our listeners books 
that might be useful to them today and tomorrow. So why would our listeners want to read this book now? So great question. Um, Right now, we are definitely living through uh, a, a dark period, right? There's been plenty of dark periods in the past, but we are dealing with these multiple crises, um, ongoing questions around the climate crisis, police brutality, economic inequality, obviously healthcare crisis, and I could go on. Um, so I think what this book might offer is to demonstrate how what the how the idea of social dreaming, which is a sort of essence of utopianism, um, the ability to dream about a future which is different than the present, has been in the past a driver of social movements and can be you know extraordinarily generative, um, a kind of generative nature of a of a radical um, a radical optimism. You know somebody like Bell Hooks talked about revolutionary love. Right. Sort of this idea of of a sort of generative, you know, loving attitude um, towards the possibility of real change. So as a way not to fall fully into a kind of place of despair, Um, I think creating counter institutions as well. I mean, I wasn't joking when I said that the Amazon warehouse workers deserve their, um, you know, their own sort of unity houses. Um, And I also think that something like workers education where. What was going on at the time is that the American Federation of Labor was not interested in organizing these big groups of workers. And so the workers organized themselves and created eventually a complete transformation of the labor movement. And I think, I hope I'm not speaking too early here to say this, but something similar is happening now, right? I mean, the Starbucks workers here in Buffalo, um, the Amazon workers and elsewhere aren't waiting necessarily for a much more established traditional uh, union to come in and teach them how to organize the right way, right? They're they're kind of taking this moment um, and creating these new the, a new and fresh union movement, which I think is uh, unbelievably optimistic in many ways. So I think one can have something to learn from that. I also think that small scale projects like cooperatives um, on a local level can create real change. Here in the city of Buffalo, there's been some very important activism around creating cooperatives to try to deal with things like the food desert situation in the African-American community, um, relationships between climate activists and racial justice activists in a variety of ways, community land trusts, lots of experimentation, right? Lots of experimentation with to see what is going to help create you know, better lives for people on the ground. I see that also in cities like Detroit. Um, So I think those also are models that are from the past that we can kind of bring into the present. That's fantastic. And listeners, this is Victoria Walcott, Living in the Future, Utopianism and the Long Civil Rights Movement. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. And that's it for today's show. You can go to the Political Junkie Substack at clairepotter.substack.com for show notes and to listen to more episodes, leave a comment, or ask a question. You can subscribe to Political Junkie for free, which gets you one newsletter a week that may or may not include a podcast. Or you can pay as little as $5 a month to get every podcast and every newsletter delivered straight to your desktop two times a week. You can also participate in subscriber chats. 
You can subscribe to Why Now on Apple iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Please leave a rating and a comment so that other listeners can find us. Please share this podcast with a friend who loves history, politics, and smart conversation. Why Now is supported by the New School for Social Research and by paying subscribers to Political Junkie. Why Now and Political Junkie are written, recorded, edited, and produced by me, Claire Potter. Show notes, technical assistance, and research are by Emma Kern. My opening theme is by Galaxy News, and my closing theme is by Avocado Junkie. You can find both of these terrific artists on soundstripe.com. That's all for now. I'll see you next time.